The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, God bless you, Ecclesia. I am uh, so excited to be able to teach you today and to get to be with you. Um, I have learned from some of our South African Ecclesians that apparently South Africa has won uh, the world championship in rugby, which is apparently a really big deal. And uh, since I don't understand rugby, it doesn't feel like as big a deal to me. Uh, but at least some Ecclesians know what it's like to experience a world championship. So um, we, are, we do know from a few years ago, and uh, we really had an amazing ride uh, going to the World Series. And uh, for many of us that love baseball, I told you last week, I love baseball because it brings people together. And uh, it, it has been quite a ride. Beautiful number of wins for our team. We have added some Prozac to the communion wine and juice. Just that we worked out a like group administration thing so that everybody gets a little boost to get through uh, the sorrow of this week. Um, we have been in a series where we are looking at some important figures in the life of the history of the church, specifically some people that make a, an impact on who we are as a church and have shaped us. And in some ways today, I, I may be most excited about this sermon of all of them uh, because I get to introduce you to a friend. I never actually met him, but he's been a mentor to me and is one of the very few people that I could tell you um, if he did not exist, if he had not uh, spoken in, uh, into my life in a significant way, I know without a, a shadow of a doubt that Ecclesia would not even exist. It wouldn't have even occurred to me that a church like this could exist. Uh, and that is uh, my friend and mentor, Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin uh, was a, a missiologist, a theologian, uh, a missionary, and I'm going to tell you much more about him. I, I was 14 years old, living in the Houston area. I grew up in a church that was, um, it was how, how do I describe it? It's a, just a very traditional Baptist church. And my dad and grandfather were both pastors. And I was 14 when I had this sense, I don't know if I would yet call it a calling, but I had this clear sense that I was supposed to be a pastor. Uh, I'm not joking with you in any way where I, I could just tell you at that point in my life, having watched um, the lives of my dad and grandfather, that was the worst news I could ever contemplate. Um, it, it meant for me a lot of things. It meant that I had to live into some things and some systems that didn't feel right, that I didn't feel like I could believe in. There's a joke about Baptists, right? You don't never take one Baptist fishing, right? Because he'll drink all your beer. You, you got to bring two because then they won't drink beer in front of each other, right? <laughs> and um, it's, it's only funny because it's true. Um, I grew up with these people. They all had bottles in a closet somewhere under paper bags and hidden, but they, it, the bottles weren't the only things they were hiding, right? There was just a lot being hidden. There was a lot that was artificial uh, and it, it made it really hard. Um, missions was something that other people did and they would come visit us to report back with these little slides. There was nothing about that life that um, felt exciting or invigorating. It felt inauthentic and boring to me. I watched the way that church people, religious people specifically treated pastors and I thought that, that's gotta be the worst job on the planet. 
the, the main way to succeed in the job really was the, the number of people you could get to make a decision or convert to Christ. And yet I had watched what was happening at our church and many of the people that made a decision or converted to Christ often did so out of fear. And so what happened was those decisions didn't really stick. They weren't really people that came into this kingdom life of Jesus' love. And, and so the whole thing for me felt really empty and sad. And yet I had... I had been given this love for Jesus and knew of Jesus' love for me. And so I tell you all that to tell you that in 1991, a professor and mentor gave me a book by a guy named Leslie Newbigin. It was called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And much of the book was about his journey planting churches in India. Now, what you need to know in the early 1900s when Leslie Newbigin was born, this is a photo of Leslie Newbigin just so you have a sense of what he looked like, born in Birmingham, England in the early 1900s, um, then spent most of his life as a missionary to India. Now, this is in a day where church planning across the globe and specifically in India and Africa looked like um, converting people to be Western people. The idea was in India, if you wanted to be a Christian, you needed to have an organ in your church and wear choir robes and talk like English, Western, British people. It was colonialism of Christianity. Newbegin had a different idea. He believed that you could be distinctly Indian in your culture and be Christian. He believed that you could live in the culture you were made for and that Christ would come to dwell uniquely in that culture. And so quickly Newbegin handed over power of the churches that he started. And he, he led them in a radically different way. Ultimately, they elected him as their bishop. But even as the bishop, um, Newbegin instead of doing what bishops would do in that day, which is the churches and pastors would travel to meet with them, they would come to the bishop's office. Newbegin would never allow for it. He would always travel to them. And so in a day that transportation in India is difficult, which is it's still difficult today if you've been to India, but he made most of those thousands and thousands of miles that he covered uh, on bicycle and on foot. And he went to people and he said that the nature of Christianity is that Christ came down to us and that's what we were called to do. So I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, when I, when I got that book, I began to imagine that there could be a church that didn't look like the churches that I grew up with. That, that you could live for Christ in a way you engage the culture in new ways. And so today, I would hope you could at least feign excitement with me before you're actually excited because I'm gonna introduce you to one of my dearest friends. And at all the services at the beginning, people kind of look at me blankly, but I'm really hoping um, that as I introduce you to the teachings of Leslie Newbegin, that you will um, share a common love with me. As always at Ecclesia, we have kids. Sometimes they're having good days or bad days. They're entitled to that. Sadly, you don't get to scream when you have a bad day. Um, don't you wish sometimes you could? Just like, that's what I feel inside. I like to just scream a little bit and let it out. and. Uh, but kids get to, and we, we love them, and they're totally welcome to do that. So if you ever think, my kid's grumpy, I'm gonna stay home, don't, bring him to church. It's a, it's a good place, uh, it's a good place to be. New Begin says this to the church. There's a few things that will help you catch a vision for how um, his story and these simple truths transform my understanding of what I might be able to do. New Begin said, how can the strange story of God made flesh, of a crucified savior, of resurrection, 
and new creation become credible for those whose entire mental training has conditioned them to believe that the real world is the world which can be satisfactorily explained and managed without the hypothesis of God. He says, in the broader world, people have uh, used reason and science to determine everything. How do you relate to those people the truth of who God is? This is what Newbegin said, and I believe it with all my heart. I know of only one clue to the answering of that question. Only one hermeneutic of the gospel, a congregation which believes it. Newbegin's thesis was, if you had people that actually believed that the gospel is good news, right? That's what gospel means, right? Gospel means what? And if it's good news, it's good, for, good news for whom? For everyone, right? If it's not good for news for everyone, it's not good news. That means it's got to be good news for people that are poor. It's got to be good news for people that are rich. It's got to be good news for people that are gay. It's got to be good news for people that are straight. Whoever you are, it's got to be good news for you. And if it's not good news for everyone, then it's not good news. And Newbegin believed that if you had a community of people that gathered together, and that community said together, we're going to live into that good news we're going to share what we've been given in a way that is, he thought it was so beautiful that the rest of the world would say, I want to be a part of that. Or put another way, Newbegin said, the question which has to be put to every local congregation is the question whether it is a credible sign of God's reign in justice and mercy over the whole of life, right? This was really important to Newbegin. This wasn't just the little corner of your life that was your spiritual life. It was the whole of life. Whether it's an open fellowship whose concerns are as wide as the concerns of humanity, whether it cares for its neighbors in a way which reflect and springs out of God's care for them, whether its common life is recognizable as a foretaste of the blessing which God intends for the whole human family. Do you see a little bit of what I see there, Ecclesia? If there were a group of people that truly cared for the whole world, for all people, for their total well-being, that, that would be a radically different orientation than any community, organization, institution that exists on the planet. This is what's unique about what it means to be a part of the church. When you exist, the church is the only institution, family, community, organization, however you want to categorize it, that exists only for the purpose of others. You, if you're truly a part of the church, you don't come here for your own benefit. You come here to be a part of being a blessing to all people. Now, the strange thing about the way that God made us is that when we are living into that truth of being a blessing to all people, we find our greatest joy because God just made us that way. But if you come here seeking self-actualization and your greatest joy, you actually won't find it. But when you come here saying, I want to serve, I want to give, I want to demonstrate the good news of God's truth to all people. So in the middle of an, uh, age 20 or 21, reading this book for the first time, I began to try to read the Bible same, simultaneously with it. And I'll never forget a day that I picked up the Bible and read this passage I'm going to share with you in Luke chapter 5. And this passage in Luke chapter 5, to me, it, it almost felt like when I read it that I had totally misunderstood the church for my entire life. What's happening in this, uh, this story where we're going to pick up is that Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's teaching. His teaching is so captivating that people would fill every place that he gathered. So this house was jam-packed with people listening to Jesus teach. And there were some people that loved their friend so much he was paralyzed. They wanted to get him to Jesus. So they decided to... Uh, 
I don't, we don't know who owned the house or how angry they were, but they decided to cut a hole in the roof and drop the guy down on Jesus, right? This is before they had belaying equipment. We don't know how they rigged it up, but they found a way to rig it up. Jesus and their teaching. Can you imagine being in that room and all of a sudden just a dude starts coming down from the roof, right? And people are like, what, what? And then Jesus heals him, been paralyzed since birth. And in Luke chapter five, it tells us that then right in front of the eyes, there, the man stood up. He picked up his bed and he left to go home. Full of praises for God, right? Can you imagine, right? This thing happens to you. How, did anybody have anything good happen to him this week? Anybody get a raise here? Tithe on it maybe, think about it, pray about it. Any, anybody get a, anybody's kids do well this week? Anybody's kids manage to show love and affection to them, right? When you come to church after some good things happen to you, anybody's kids struggle this week? Anybody's kids mean to them? Um, when you ha come to church and good things have happened to you, do you have the sense when Paul leads us in worship and Courtney leads us in song, when, you, when they're leading us, does anybody else have this sense of extra joy of just like, oh man, you get to express some of that joy. Can you imagine being in the room when a man was healed? How much joy you would have to express to God? So they praised God, they were awestruck. It said everyone was stunned. They couldn't help but feel awestruck. And they praised God too. And the people said, we have seen extraordinary things today. So what does Jesus do after he teaches this mass group of people and heals a man? Probably something super religious, right? Well, let's read. It tells us that sometime later, Jesus walked along the street and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Now already know that if you're reading this in Jesus' day, this is loaded with meaning. The guy had the name of a priest, but he wasn't working as a priest. He was working as a tax collector. It's hard for us to fully understand this. Like you may go, I don't really like the IRS people that much. Anybody here like you got to write a check to them or sometimes they'll just pull it out of your account whether you said it was okay or not. Like you could have a little animosity. This is a totally different thing. Imagine being taken over by another country and then having your friends and family members go work for that other country to tax you and for them to take as much as they wanted essentially because they were free to, to get really rich in the process. So, so for instance, the, the, the scariest, most um, adrenaline invigorating movie we had in the 80s when I was growing up was Red Dawn, right? Anybody remember Red Dawn? So Russia's coming to take over and only a few dudes, football players with deer rifles managed to fight them off, right? But we get this outside empire takes over and then they start taxing us by hiring our cousins to do the work, right? How do you think we feel about those guys? Not pleased with them, right? This is the furthest kind of outcast you can imagine. Jesus sees Levi a priestly name who's now working as a tax collector for the Romans. And what does he do? He goes to Levi, he says this, follow me, follow me. What's it tell us that Levi did? And he got up from his desk and he left everything just as the fishermen had. And he followed Jesus. And shortly after this, Levi invited many of his friends and associates, including many tax collectors, to his home for a large feast in Jesus' honor. Everyone sat at a table together. Now imagine this. Jesus does religious teaching. He heals somebody. And then he's sitting 
at a table feasting, eating and drinking with the people that everybody despised and hated. So it tells us that the Pharisees, the religious people, and their associates, they got the attention of some of Jesus' disciples. And the Pharisees came in like whispers and low voices, and they're trying to say to the disciples, hey, disciples, what's wrong with you? Why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and other immoral people, right? Anybody grow up in a world where it was really clear there were the good people and the bad people? However you defined it, right? I love the Astros in part because I grew up going to the Astrodome. And in the Astrodome in the early days, right, you were, you could literally, I think kids were 25 cents and adults were 50 cents in the outfield. There were two reasons to sit in the outfield. You were poor like we were and you could bring your whole family or you wanted to spend all your money on beer. Those were the two reasons to sit there. And so you had this beautiful collision of families and people that were drunk by the fourth inning, right? <laughs> And the world I grew up in, those were the bad people, right? Those people were bad. You, what do you do with bad people? What do you do? You stay away from them. You don't get near them. So these Pharisees are going, wait, you're the religious teacher. You healed somebody. Why are you with the worst people? They're like, we don't understand. So they ask. They're whispering because they don't want Jesus to hear. The only thing they didn't understand is he was Jesus, so he could hear everything, right? It didn't matter that he, how far away you are, where you his, whispered. So Jesus responds. And Jesus tells them this. And I got to tell you, Ecclesia, if you hear it today and you got some wrong ideas about what the church is, it'll turn them all upside down in beautiful ways. Jesus said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I haven't come for the pure and the upstanding. Hear that? The church I grew up in, it was for the pure and the upstanding. In fact, I, I got to share with my, my friend in fourth grade, I got to invite him to follow Jesus and he did. But he only went to our church for a few months because people treated him so badly because he lived in a trailer home and his parents used a lot of different language than people at our church. His dad had a stack of Playboys sitting in his room and he just wasn't church material. His church was for the pure and the upstanding. I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, one of the reasons I love all of you so much is my, my church for my childhood would not let you in. You were way too rough around the edges. They would kick you out so fast. But I read Luke 5, and I started thinking, well, maybe Jesus' understanding of the church was different than my experience of it. He says, Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I haven't come for the pure and the upstanding. I've come to call notorious sinners to rethink their lives and turn to God. Ecclesia, you're a bunch of notorious sinners. I'm a notorious sinner. If we live our lives like notorious sinners, we don't look down our nose at anybody. Anybody here feel like you've got the right to look down your nose at somebody? See, if... if we've come and Jesus has forgiven us just like everybody else, then we all meet in the same place. And that part of religion, it's just so bankrupt and Jesus knew it and Jesus wanted to explode it. So the Pharisees say, well, explain to us why you and your disciples are so commonly found partying like this. They couldn't figure out you're Jesus, but you're eating and drinking with these bad people. And even the disciples of John are known for fasting rather than feasting. 
and for saying prayers rather than drinking wine. Now, it's fascinating that this is the grounds on which Jesus is being accused. And I wonder, Ecclesia, is anybody look, you, any, everybody's got some religious friend, right? Don't you think your religious friend ought to think you're crazy for the people you hang out with? They ought to look at you and go, why are you eating with those people? Why are you with those people? If they are, maybe we're living into the path in the way of Jesus in a beautiful way. And then Jesus explains it this way. He says, imagine there's a wedding going on. Is that the time to tell the guests to ignore the bridegroom and fast? Sure, there's a time for fasting when the bridegroom has been taken away. What's he saying? He says, I'm the groom, you're the bride. We're getting married and we're starting a church. That's what our marriage is. He says, sure, there's a time for fasting when the bridegroom has been taken away. Look, nobody tears up a new garment to make a patch for an old garment. If he did, the new patch would shrink up and rip the old, and the old garment would be worse off than before. He says, there's a time for something new. And then he says it a different way. Because he's like, if you don't sow, maybe you know about wine. So he says, nobody takes freshly squeezed juice and puts it into old, stiff wineskins. If he did, the fresh wine would make the old skins burst open and both the wine and the wineskins would be ruined. New demands new. New wine for new wineskins. Anyway, those who've never tasted the new wine won't know what they're missing. They'll always say the old wine is good enough for me. Now, I could teach on this passage for six weeks, but let me just tell you, Jesus is saying the church will always be birthing things that are new. We don't have to wear the same old choir robes or sing the same songs, or do the exact same things, that there are new things happening, and that God's love for people is so significant that he leans in with the people that nobody would expect. In fact, one of my favorite passages uh, in this chapter is just earlier than where I read it to you. Just before Jesus was teaching and healed this man, he had gone fishing with his disciples. Now, I got a lot of fishing stories, but none of them sound very good when you compare them to Jesus' fishing stories, right? because Jesus controlled the fish, right? So he did what he did on a couple of occasions and he just, all of a sudden the nets were full. And maybe for the first time, Peter was sitting there and when he saw the nets fill, he knew this wasn't just they got lucky. He knew this was a Jesus moment. And he started to figure out that Jesus was more than a rabbi and a teacher. And so Peter in this passage, anybody remember what Peter says to Jesus? This beautiful thing happens. And Peter turns to Jesus and said, you shouldn't be around me. He says, I'm a very sinful man. And he knew, you are holy. I'm a really sinful man. You should get far away from me. Because his understanding was that when you're religious, what you do is you get away from the bad people. So what Jesus does in his response to Peter ought to tell us, Ecclesia, everything about who Jesus is and what the church is. And you know what he did, right? Did he get away from Peter? He leaned in with Peter. And this guy that was a very sinful man, what did he ultimately say to him? Peter, I'm gonna rename you Peter. You're gonna be the rock and I'm gonna build the church on you. Not only am I not gonna pull away from you, I'm gonna lean in with you and together will found the very church. Now that ought to tell you that if Peter was a foundation for the church, that everybody's welcome in the church, just as you are. 
And I believe that this is part of hearing Newbegin's teaching and reading the scripture in a clear way. I gotta just tell you, I believe that to be a part of the church is the greatest gift of our life. Newbegin puts it this way. He says, a church that exists only for itself and its own enlargement is a witness against the gospel. He says, not only are we here for others, if we're not here for others, we're a witness against the good news. Now, that's a beautiful, beautiful statement. So I got one, two, three, four, five things I want to teach you um, that I've learned from Leslie Newbigin that I want to share with you. They could be 95. I'm thinking about doing a short Ecclesia podcast, if anybody thinks they would listen to it, that I'll share probably the next 15 things that didn't make it into the sermon. Um, but I'm, I'm only going to do it if you think you'll listen to it. If not, I'll just tell my kids or something. Um, <laughs> let them hear it. So... Five things uh, that I learned from Leslie Newbigin, and then three things I want to invite you to do. Here's the first. This one's so important. I, I learned from Leslie Newbigin for the first time that we're not a people that need to live in fear of our culture. We don't have to be afraid of the culture. See, I grew up in a world that we were afraid of, of rock music and bad films, and there was all these people, there was these evil things that were going to get you. In fact, it's a perfect week to be teaching this to you right after Halloween, right? Because some, some of us maybe weren't even allowed to do Halloween, right? And I got to tell you, if you're an Ecclesian, I hope you did Halloween well. I hope that you met some neighbors, right? Anybody meet any new neighbors this week? Good. I hope you gave away the best candy. The Christians ought to give away the full Snickers bars. You ought to be those people, right? We ought to be like, those are the best neighbors. You, everybody wants to go to those people, right? I, I hope that you leaned in, that you weren't afraid. When I finally figured out that I could believe what the scripture said, that greater is he who is in me than greater than he, is, than he who is in the world, that I don't have to live in fear of the world, that was the greatest gift. It meant that we get to engage all of the world with the good news of God. And I believe that is beautiful. Newbigin puts it this, this way. He says, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave. Right? That's what many Christians, they become sectarian. They pull away. They live in their little bubble. He says the, the, the church wasn't meant for that, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. Why do we gather here? We gather here so that we can be refreshed and refueled and energized as we go back into the world, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and all the world that we get to share God's love. Now, I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, if this isn't a priority for you, if you show up here once every six or eight weeks, you won't be refueled, refreshed, and energized to do what God's called you to do. You need a little more encouragement that come just for the communion. Even if you think the sermons suck, just come for the communion, come for the worship, Come for the coffee for somebody to pray for you and then go out so that as you go out, you go, I got something to share, right? Anybody feel like when you go out today, you'll have something to share? If you don't, I'm gonna try to get better then. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna preach better. So let me, let me do that with you. That literally, I, I, was, uh, I was a teenager reading the book of Daniel. If you come to our open door class, you'll hear me teach a little more on this. That in, in the book of Daniel, we see this beautiful example of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you have kids and they watch Veggie Tales, Rakshak and Benny with funny veggie type hairs with a slightly different story. But 
They were taken out of this world where they all worshiped the Judeo-Christian God, right? And they were dropped into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar where they worshiped many gods. And they had to figure out what does it look like to live a life unto God in that post-Christian place. It's a lot like the difference between Houston in the 1950s and Houston today. We live in a world where people worship many gods. We have to figure out in our culture, what does it mean to live for God in the broader culture? And Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah use the scripture as their guide. What do they eat? How do they pray? When do they pray? When do they obey the government? When do they disobey the government? They had all these decisions to make and they didn't make them all perfectly, but the scriptures were their guide. Newbegin explains it this way. He says, the choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture? Now we're always gonna be a people that live in culture. And what we don't wanna do is create a separate Christian culture. Culture is like the water for fish, right? You almost, you, you almost don't think it exists because it so surrounds you, you're so used to it. Um, C.S. Lewis has this great um, essay. I'm working too many things into the sermon, but I think of good things and I have to tell you. He has this great essay called The Reading of Old Books. And what he, what he talks about is when you read old books, arguments between different groups, that groups can be arguing different points, but what they don't realize is that they, because they came to it with the same worldview, they carry into it the same assumptions. So we may have different assumptions. Does that make sense to everybody? It's a bad idea to try to explain C.S. Lewis in 28 words, but, um, but what we need to know is that th that culture, we're gonna live in it. Now, how do we live in it well? How do we live in it in a uniquely Christian way? And I'm grateful uh, that Newbegin taught me that we're not a people of fear. You won't hear any rock music seminars around here. You, you won't hear any, um, get any book lists of the good books to read and the bad books to read. But I'll talk to you more about how do you read books in a faithful way? How do you go to movies in a faithful way? We'll get to that at the end. Secondly, this is what you need to know, I learned from Leslie Newbegin, that the gospel leads to a beautiful life. He, see, I follow Jesus not just because it's true, it is true. I also believe that the good news of Jesus is the best life you can live. That this life of generosity, this life of hospitality, this life of caring for others, this life of trusting in God rather than in myself, that that is actually the best way to live. And that when we live into it well, we will often sit back and go, wow, this is a really beautiful life. Now, does it mean we don't have problems? We're gonna have plenty of problems. Anybody else have some this week? Not just the Astros, but like real problems, right? <laughs> like real problems. We have real problems, but we face those problems with a sense of faith as we walk through it. And so even the real problems are not going to crush us. We won't be crushed under them because we walk through them with this sense of faith. And that, I believe, Ecclesia is a gift. Thirdly, Newbegin taught me, and this one's really important, hear this. Action is greater than belief. Action is greater than belief. You get a bunch of Christians together, you know what most Christians do? They go, what do you believe? What do you believe? I don't know, what do you believe? You believe this, I believe this. Or they start competing about um, having better beliefs, right? So there's all these words that you can use to describe what you believe about the Bible and Christians love to banter back. I believe the Bible's um, inerrant. I believe it's super duper inerrant. I believe it's you know infallibly, inerrantly, perfectly, inerrantly perfect, right? And you just, they keep going. It's like husbands trying to compete for who loves their wife the most, right? And at the end of the day, this is what Newbegin taught me. It doesn't really matter what you believe. 
What do you do with what you believe? This is how he says it. He says, it's less important to ask a Christian what he or she believes about the Bible than it is to inquire what he or she does with it. You know what? You could just believe a little bit of the Bible, but if you actually acted on it, you'd be better off than somebody with a PhD who doesn't do anything. He says, just, just take what you do believe. Do you believe God loves all people? Do you believe God forgives? Then will you forgive? Will you forgive others? I tell you, if you live into a life of forgiveness, you say, Yo, Christ has forgiven me, I'm gonna forgive others. That's a really good place to start in life. And what we do, I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, there's a lot of reasons I love you, but I love being a part of a church that moves to action. We're not sitting around, it's really easy to sit around and talk about. There are a lot of people right now going, I don't like what's happening here. I don't like what's happening at the border. I, whatever it is, like I think we've all agreed, hey, we, we don't really want kids to be separated from their families. Whatever's going on, however they got there. But you know what? I don't want to be a part of a group of people that are just posting on social media all the things they disagree with. I want to be a part of a people that like what we're doing. We're establishing a center right now so that we can have kids come here to be fostered because we believe kids don't belong in facilities, right? They belong where? In families and homes, right? So we say, no, we, what we're going to do, everybody can talk about it on social media, what you disagree with. The question is, who wants to do something? And I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, it's one of the reasons I love you. It's one of the reasons I want to serve you. And I want us to keep moving and responding together. And at the end of the sermon, I'm gonna give you a couple more things that I need you, I'm pleading with you, to act with me on. Fourthly, Newbegin taught me that we're a people that are called to be the kingdom of justice. He put it this way, he said, the living God is a God of justice and mercy. And he will be satisfied with nothing less than a people in whom his justice and mercy are alive. What does that mean? That means everywhere we go, where we see inequality, where we see injustice, it keeps us up at night. When we know that there are certain neighborhoods in Houston where we know that those kids are at a disadvantage. We know that God made them in the image of God in the same way that the kids that live in River Oaks are made in the image of God and they just don't have the same op opportunities. We're the people that can't sleep at night until we do something about it. And so we start mentoring, we start working with schools, we go in, go into your public school and just ask them, hey, are there any kids that have public lunch debt that they hadn't been able to pay their bill? Hey, I'd like to pay that bill, right? That we just start moving towards doing things, taking action in ways that create that justice in the world. We're the people that can't sleep till it happens. Lastly, and then I'll give you some things to work on. The thing I learned from Newbegin that's so important is that mission is core identity. If you're a Christian, you're on mission. And so it's one of the reasons he says, it's not this add-on, like we have a church and then we have a missions department, right? I've had a lot of people through the years send me their resume and say, I see that you haven't been able to find a missions pastor and you should get a missions pastor. I'll, and I tell them, we're all missions pastors at Ecclesia because everything is mission. It's our mission here. Manuel, who's on sabbatical right now, pray for him. He's enjoying some time of rest, but he leads out at our mission here around the inner city for people that live on the streets, because Manuel wants lived on the streets, and he's a gift. And every one of our pastors serves in the city and internationally. And I'm gonna tell you more in a minute about the trip that we have to Venezuela this week and the ways that I need you to respond. But together, we're gonna get to Advent soon. I'm gonna report to you on the number of water wells and the impact that you've had 
to bring clean water to people across the globe. And I gotta tell you, at 20 years, it's mind-blowing. It's beautiful. And in it, it's gonna call us not to look back and go, we did our job, now we get to sit back and rest. It's just the opposite. It goes, wasn't that fun? That was so fun, we should do more of it. Wasn't that beautiful? It was so beautiful, we wanna see more of it happen. Those are the people we're made to be. So, there's not a Texans game today, by the way. It's almost over right now, so I'm trying to preach fast like you're going to a game or something, but I'm gonna slow down and drink my coffee and then I'm gonna give you three things. This is what I wanna do, not much longer. Let me give you three things that I'd like to invite you to do in response to the impact that Newbegin has had on our church. I hope you can see at this point that whether you knew who Le Leslie Newbegin was, because Newbegin has impacted me and impacted our church, that if our church has impacted you, you've been impacted by Leslie Newbegin. You've been impacted by his teaching. So in light of this, what should I do now? Three things I wanna ask you to consider. The first is that we engage the whole of culture with the gospel and the good news. See, the church I grew up in had this philosophy of uh, what they would say is that your brain is a sponge and that your brain simply absorbs whatever you see and hear. Anybody taught this at some point in your life? They would say garbage in, garbage out, right? So the idea was if you listen to this music, if you watch this film, if you read this book, your brain just absorbed it, right? Anybody think that's true? No, your brain... God gave it to you so you could discern what's true and what's not true, right? If you just listen to music and don't think about it, you're gonna be hurting. If you listen to a Taylor Swift song and you think that's how a breakup's supposed to be, so that's how all your breakups end up, you're gonna be miserable, right? You wanna listen to it and think, I don't think breakups should be like that. That's awful. That's painful, right? You ought to read a book and say, I agree with this, I disagree with this. And the scripture ought to guide you in that journey. You ought to go to a movie, and this is what, Ecclesia, please hear me. If you've got kids, this idea, see, that what I was rooted in, what I grew up in, was this sense of don't listen to the rest of those people, only listen to us. And so we didn't teach kids how to think. What we want to do is say, hey, go to films with your kids, go to movies with your kids in an age-appropriate way, and think through, talk through with them what's true in that film, what's not true. There's all kinds of nuance. There are places that are like, that's, it gets even more dangerous because there's things that are like a partial truth. It's half true, but it's half not true. And how do you discuss those things in art, film, music, culture, relationships, right? We want to be a people that believe that the good news speaks into all areas of life. And my hope and prayer is that the kids that grow up in our church learn to see the world and think through the world uh, in those ways. Secondly, I wanna invite you to reimagine your participation in the church in light of Newbegin's teaching. Would you reimagine if the church is the primary expression of God's love to the world, and that means that all of us are a part of it in a beautiful and significant way, what are you called to do? If, if action truly is greater than beliefs, what are you ready and prepared to do to act on what God has called you? Too. And let me give you just a couple things to begin to do this week. These are places that we desperately need you. I'm going to be leading a trip this week back to the Colombia-Venezuela border. Um, many of you have wondered, uh, what's happening there? Um, 
And because it's kind of dropped out in the news, you would think um, maybe it's okay now. It's not okay. Um, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And so we've got a few things that we desperately need for you to bring. If you could bring them today, that would be best. We will leave uh, and have things loaded on Tuesday. So if you could have them here for sure by Tuesday morning, that would be great. I would love for you to put it in a suitcase. Somebody asked, will I get the suitcase back? The answer is no, you won't get the suitcase back. It will be in Venezuela. If you want to do a really fun trick, put a GPS thing in it and you'll see exactly where it ends up, right? And it'd be kind of fun just to track it along the way. Um, what, the first time we did this, I'll be honest with you, I thought, okay, they asked, our friends there asked, and we went, okay, well, that, you want some protein bars, that's fine. You want some baby form, that's fine. I, I didn't realize till I got there, right? And Rocio, the, the wife of Wilfredo, she opened one of the protein bars. It was, just, it was a Cliff Bar, right? Anybody like Cliff Bars? Like, I like Cliff Bars. She opens it. She takes a bite of it and she starts to just cry. She said, I, I've never, I, this is so delicious. I said, it's a Cliff Bar, right? She said, you don't understand. Then her husband, Wilfredo, explained to me when I asked him to sit down and eat a hamburger. And he didn't want to eat it because he said, no one in my church has had meat in years. Okay, I, I'm starting to understand, right? So you may load up a thing of protein bars and you may think, it's a protein bar. When I would say, it's, it's, a pro, it's a demonstration of God's love to people that are in a desperate situation. So I wanna invite you to fill up some suitcases that you won't ever get back. And if you have new walking shoes or socks or baby formula, literally one of the, I could tell a thousand Venezuela stories, but let me just tell you one more. Um, you prayed for Jorge Alberto. He's one of the kids that we have been uh, trying to help that has liver failure. Um, in many places in the world where people are starving, they have developed um, decades and decades of, um, what do you call it, practices that help them live on very little, right? So uh, in many places in the world that we go to, they have a lot of foods that have no nutrition. They're not really food, but they fill their stomach. Does that make sense? So you go places where they just, they eat things. There's not, they're not getting much from it, but it fills their stomach. In Venezuela, people weren't used to being hungry and starving, and so they just don't have these mechanisms built up. So what happens is they start to eat things that aren't food just to fill their stomachs, or babies won't stop crying, and they'll give them something. So little Jorge Alberto had been given a baby formula that was mixed with lye. They just were trying to fill his stomach, but they caused ultimately liver failure. The mom, mom didn't know exactly what he, they were getting. People were so desperate, right? And so what you need to know is like, well, I'm sending some food or baby formula. When people are in that kind of place, everything that we do is a really beautiful, tangible expression of God's love. In fact, I'm gonna go back to the quote that I didn't read to you before about mission right now. This is what Newbegin says about it. He says, mission begins, did I read this one or I forget it? Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. This is what I want you to hear so desperately. And this is where it starts, right? I, there's so much about life and ministry that is just hard. But I will tell you one of the reasons I love to do it, I'm called to do it, is because every day it begins again with this explosion of joy. Do you realize, Ecclesia, that we get to make a radical difference in the world when we come together in these ways? 
We're going to get to bring a whole plane load of supplies to Venezuela this week. And that ought to be something we celebrate. He said it begins with an explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. Isn't that a great way to put it? It's such good news you can't help but share it and it just keeps spreading. It keeps spreading through acts of goodness and kindness and leads to these deep and profound questions. So first, um, would you help me Will you help our brothers and sisters in Venezuela so that we can bring them a massive amount of supplies that will be a huge gift? Secondly, on Tuesday night, we have an event here. The pastor of the church in Charleston, um, where we had an awful um, shooting and murder um, of a number of people in a Bible study is gonna be with us. Gonna talk to us about forgiveness and reconciliation and what that looks like. I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, we, we live in a world that is so divided. We live in a world where bigotry and hatred have become accepted in so many places. And I do not believe in any part of me that politicians or news channels or um, I won't pick on any talk show, but you name the talk show, I don't think any of them are gonna solve the problem. I believe the only answer is the kind of love that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about, the kind of love that drives out hate. And that love is only found in the love of Jesus. And so we wanna be the kind of church where we can come together and say, what does that kind of reconciliation and forgiveness look like? And this is the kind of event right here in this room that I would love for every Ecclesian to be able to participate in. That'll be Tuesday night here at 6.30. So lastly, I'm gonna give you the last thing and then we'll celebrate communion. In light of New Begins teaching, what else can you do? This is what I'd love for you to do. Will you open your table? I don't care if it's a coffee table or it's seat 16, but there is nothing more Christian than what we heard about in Luke 5 that Jesus did, gathering people, especially people that would be scandalous to other people, gathering them around our table and eating food together and laughing and praying and sharing life. Some of you have just been real busy and you're like in, in the midst of busyness, and life's been hard, you just forget to open your table. I wanna just remind you, this is what makes life so good. Whatever it is you have to serve, would you also look for other opportunities, right? You live in Houston, Texas, it's not hard to find an opportunity to show hospitality to people. And, and you don't have to have a lot of money to do it. The place I eat my breakfast tacos at, they're, they're a buck 20, that's how much they cost, right? And you know what, in front of that place, Every day there is somebody I can buy a taco for. Every day, just because of the particular population and traffic around that place. And there is nothing more joyful. It's the best dollar 20 cents I could spend. It's to buy somebody a taco, sit down with them for a few minutes, share words of kindness. We believe at Ecclesia, it's impossible to hate people that you eat great food with. It's just impossible especially if there's a steak and some wine on the table. You're like, I, I thought I hated you. I love you. I don't know. There's a filet on the table. You're amazing. You, you actually look good too. I didn't think you were that handsome, but you look really handsome when there's a steak on the table. Right? Everything about everybody looks better. And Jesus knew it, right? It's easy to demonize a tax collector until you sit and eat with them and you hear their story 
And then you learn to love them. And so Ecclesia, I'm thrilled that I get to be a part of a church. Not a religious institution, not a place for the pure and the upstanding. I wanna be a part of a church filled with other notorious sinners like me that believe that the love of Jesus changes things for you and for me and for the whole world. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.